Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number 240. Today, we're rolling into part number two of our trail camera strategy session with my buddy, Chad Sylvester, and today is all about fall trail camera strategies, so stay tuned. up everyone happy wednesday to you hope you're doing well hope you are feeling fine we are officially in the dog days of summer it's actually kind of one of my favorite no i won't say one of my favorite times of year but it's one of my favorite parts of the summer so it's like the complete scurry and scramble to get trail cameras into the into the timber is kind of over and now i'm just kind of sitting back relaxing shooting my bow and then making plans for when i'm going to when I'm going to check cameras, I think I mentioned in the last podcast, we did a pool for a new area that I had scouted and the inventory came back killer. Literally today, I have a cell camera in that general area. I got another new buck on camera. Uh, I think it's the same one I got earlier in this week, but there's a new buck that showed up, um, which is super exciting. And so I think between local, you know, things that are close to me and things that I scouted this winter, I, I want to say there's probably six to seven uh, shooter deer. Um, that I'd be happy to shoot this coming uh, this coming fall. So I think it's the best crop of, I'll put it this way, it's the most targets I think that I've had in any one given year that I can think of. Um, now, I think last year's quality was maybe just a little bit better. I didn't ha have quite as many, but what I did have on camera, I think might have just been in terms of caliber, um, was maybe just a little bit better. But these deer that I'm I'm getting on camera right now are all, 
you know, mature deer. When I say mature for PA, I would say anything above three and a half and older. And I think really when I look at some of these picks, a handful of them are in that four and a half year old category. So uh, pretty stoked about that. And the other cool part is too, is, you know, with the one piece, I'm kind of working it with a couple of buddies. Uh, me and two buddies are kind of working it together, kind of sharing trail camera inventory and the text chain back and forth. Whenever any one of us does a, does a camera pool is uh, it just goes on for like an hour of trading pictures. And this is what I got. And we're all, we're all kind of using this, uh, this platform called deer lab. If you guys haven't checked it out, uh, a guy, I know John, super awesome dude um, created it. If you've not checked it out, I highly recommend going to, I think it's DeerLab.com and checking it out. I don't work with him in any capacity. It was just, he shared the thing for me to kind of check out a couple of years ago and I've continued to use it. And it's just a place where I aggregate all my trail camera images uh, helps me keep them organized and it pulls in the weather data and stuff like that and gives you some, um, some metrics on wind that the, your deer that you're, you know, if you tag them and stuff like that, it'll kind of track them and you understand what kind of wind they like to use to travel in certain areas and how often they're hitting certain trail, cam- trail camera sites and, and stuff like that. And it's just really convenient. Number one, for me to kind of get a picture of what a specific deer is doing that I'm potentially wanting to hunt or what shooter bucks are doing in general in an area. And then, uh, the other thing that helps, especially, you know, whenever I'm working with, you know, two buddies, we're all kind of working together and hunting this general piece and kind of following these these deer around and, and sharing trail camera information. We just use that to aggregate all of it so we all have access to it, can see it, see what's going on and can all kind of keep tabs on what deer are in the area and, and, and how they're kind of behaving. And we all know that, um, you know, these are summertime pictures and stuff like that. Things are going things are going to change, but it's just kind of cool to to get the. uh to get the party started, um, so to speak, you know, as, as we're kind of landing here squarely in, in, in the, in the velvet time period, knowing that soon, you know, I think, you know, I, I have a vacation coming up here in the, like the next week or so. And so that really, when I get back from that, will mark like, all right, it's time to kind of get down to the nitty gritty. You know, I'll probably go out and do a trail camera pool of some of the places, especially locally that haven't been checked in maybe two months. I'll check those and probably start thinking about moving some of them into more of the fall, um, you know, the fall areas that I would move, move trail cameras to really kind of want to hold off to that. Uh, what is it? I think it was that August 18th through the 20th time frame that, uh, that Chad mentioned on the previous trail camera strategy podcast that we did that I think was two podcasts ago. If you haven't listened to that one, I'd go check that one out, but I'm kind of waiting until that time frame to, to start moving stuff because I want to see what deer kind of come through that I haven't seen before in that time frame Cause you know, at least what the uh, what the data suggests, or I think what, what he kind of laid out was those deer that are hitting the camera in that time frame are oftentimes deer that are going to be showing up in that area, uh, in the fall to kind of use that, that, that particular area as their, as part of their fall range. So going to try to hold off and wait until I hit that time frame so I can kind of get all that data and not have to make, you know, an additional trip into, um, to check trail cameras. The other thing that I'm doing right now, man, is just shooting my bow a ton. Um, Cool thing is, I think I mentioned in one of the podcasts, I changed broadheads for this year and shooting the uh, Afflictor uh, K2 fixed uh, broadheads, um, killer broadheads. Now, when I first shot them, I was really just kind of shooting them at, at, at close range um, and, you know, maybe 25, 30-ish yards or so. And what I found in the past whenever I shoot broadheads, a lot of times I'll be pretty accurate in that kind of shorter, you know, uh, shorter distance, if you will. And what I started seeing with some broadheads is as I got out to like the 40, 45 and 50, I would start to get planning. Now, look, in the whitetail woods, I'm not um, I'm not shooting anything further than probably 30 yards. But I always kind of like to check and see, you know, how far out can I can I continue to be accurate with a specific broadhead? Right. And so this past week, I just, you know, as I was shooting, wanted to shoot a little further range because I like to shoot further than my than my kill range just to make sure I'm confident. And started flinging those out to like 40, 45, and 50 yards in my yard. And those things were just dropping dimes. And so I'm super stoked that I made the switch with those uh, this year. If you want to check those out, they're at afflictorbroadheads.com. It's super cool. You know, they um, the Furals are actually made in Dayton, Ohio. Um, and then they're actually assembled, completely assembled in their facility in Texas. And I'm, I'm shooting the K2 fixed broadhead. They also have some, uh, I was corrected from the last time I kind of mentioned them. They have a hybrid, so it's not a... Um, it's not a mechanical thieves. It's actually a hybrid and actually Exodus just did a really cool, um, kind of review, so to speak on their, uh, YouTube channel 
during their gear gadget se- uh, session. So that was on this most recent, uh, this past Sunday that just launched. So I'd head over to their YouTube channel if you want to kind of check out and see a little bit more about Afflictor. They mentioned it as part of their gear gadget uh, review. But super stoked behind with those this year, getting killer penetration on the target. So, you know, again, I'm shooting the K2 fixed blade. Those are killer. And if you're a, if you're more of a non-fixed blade type of person, um, you know, I would go ahead and check out their 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 hybrid heads at, at Afflictor.com. One last piece of housekeeping here before we jump into today's episode. Uh, I was just talking earlier about my Velvet camera pool. Super stoked with what I'm seeing this year. And as you always know, our buddies at Exodus, they have the Velvet Fest, which officially kicks off deer season for most of us anyway. So from July 21st through August 11th, they're going to be having some killer prizes for people who use the hashtag Velvet Fest on social media that share any of your whitetail adventures. It doesn't have to be trail cameras. It can be food plotting, scouting, whatever the case is. If you're in the market for a camera as well, Velvet Fest is the perfect time to get ready for the season and actually get ready to up your arsenal, if you will, for that fall uh, that fall trail camera kind of push that you'll be swapping cameras around as Velvet Fest kind of starts to draw draw closer to a close. You want to make sure that you'll head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and sign up for their newsletter because that is where all the information related to the Velvet Fest and any of the prizes, any of the deals that they'll have going on, you can find all the information there. So every single camera that you would uh, potentially purchase comes with a random prize card. You'll have to scratch off to reveal the prize. Of course, those are my boys, so I kind of know. Uh, I got a little bit of a heads up. They got some killer stuff coming down the line, so you want to make sure you get involved with that. To sweeten the pot even more, every single order offers the chance to receive a limited edition Velvet Fest laser engraved camera. That's right. If you are the lucky recipient of this camera, you'll receive a $1,000 gift card for the Exodus store. That's right. One G note. Exodus gift card. There's a lot to this campaign, so you'll just want to head over to the website and sign up for the newsletter. Again, ExodusOutdoorGear.com because you won't want to miss out on the opportunity. If you're not familiar with Exodus, which I find it hard to believe if you listen to this podcast, over the last six years, they've consistently shown they build quality trail cameras that flat out work and, of course, have the best warranty period in the industry. Every single camera is backed by their five-year warranty and even comes with a theft and damage coverage. That's right. Five years, literally half decade, you'll be covered. But more than likely you won't need it because their cameras are already built to last. So here's to velvet fest. Make sure you use the hashtag velvet fest to celebrate any of your trail camera pictures, any of your deer activity that you have going on out in the outdoors. Be sure to tag me and tag Exodus because I want to see what you're up to. So with that, we'll go ahead and get jumped into today's podcast. Have a cool show for you guys today. We're kind of moving and transitioning from that summer trail camera time period to that fall trail camera time period. We know that, you know, of course, whenever you're kind of getting your inventory for the summer, you're kind of focusing on where deer are going to be feeding oftentimes, right? Because they're going to be filling their bellies this time of year. So what happens whenever fall starts to come? Deer start to go hard horn, testosterone spikes. They start to transition to their fall ranges. Things outside of food become to dictate or start to dictate some of their movement and some of their activity during the course of the day. And there's specific places and areas that you want to be thinking about to kind of capture the inventory and to understand how deer are moving during that critical time period where you may have an opportunity to intercept and stick an arrow in one. So with that, today we are talking all about fall trail fall trail camera strategies with my buddy Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into today's podcast. And as always, would like to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. This is part number two of the DIY report with my buddy Chad Sylvester from Exodus. The part number one, if you didn't listen to that, go back and listen to that where we talked all about summer trail camera strategies, some tips, some hacks to try to help you get better summer trail camera pictures, help you get better velvet pictures. Today, we are transitioning into, no pun intended, into the fall, that time of year that we all love where the deer have now gone hard-horned. We can now kind of start to make some plans with the trail camera data that we have, and that's really kind of helping to inform our overall hunting strategies but before we get started with that how you doing this evening my brother how's your drink treating you okay that's good man um i gotta give a shout out to chris west i'm not sure if he's a truth from a stand listener or not but um he gifted us a case of spotted cow while we were in well he lives in minnesota but we were right on the mississippi so just you know stone throw away from uh wisconsin but uh it's not world famous, but it's Wisconsin. Famous. <laughs> well, so I mean, spotted the spotted cows treated me well. Right. Well, world Wisconsin famous is is all often referred to as uh, world famous. 
I don't know if you ever heard that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm making all this up. Completely making it up. <laughs> but the big question was, was when you were in Minnesota, were you, uh, were you feeling Minnesota? If you're picking up what I'm putting down, are you getting that, are you getting that lyric reference? No, you're I'm not. not. I'm not. All right. It's, I'm not. It's a, uh, look in California, feeling Minnesota. It's a, it's a sound garden. Uh, it's Soundgarden lyric reference from the late great Chris Cornell. So I figured I would I would hit you with that one. I'm surprised you don't know that one though, man. I'm not I'm not that much older than you. No, I I actually it's, Soundgarden is not a a staple in my playlist, but every once in a while they're they're in right. there. So what um, you're telling me yeah, is I'm, surprised. Th- I'm gonna have to listen more intently. Right to you. So what you're telling me is that they didn't play a lot of Soundgarden at the rodeo when you were when you were riding. Is <laughs> what you're telling me. No, they didn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. <laughs> well, this this trip this or this year to Kansas, man, we'll have to remedy that. Well, uh, hey, you know, not to sidetrack for away from trail cameras, I'm thinking of getting a little backpack guitar to bring on our trip this year to Kansas. What do you think? That way we can have a little campfire sing along in Kansas out on the plains. That would be. That would be dope. Yeah, you know, I figured, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, you know, maybe we'll eat cans of beans. Well, you already eat all your food out of a can. Don't even heat it up when we're out on these trips. But we'll, we'll eat yeah. cans of beans over the campfire and feel like real, you know, Okies from Muskogee or whatever that whatever that saying is. I'm just pulling out all like the lyric references tonight, man. <laughs> I don't know, getting delirious. Well, that would be Oklahoma. That would be Oklahoma. But well, we're close, man. We're gonna, be, you know, it's like it's 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 a border state, so you know. Yeah, yeah, sure. You sure. know, I gave you worldwide Wisconsin, so you got to give me Oklahoma, Okie from Muskogee or whatever in Kansas. <laughs> so anyway, you know. that sounds that sounds like a deal. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So anyway, transitioning here to to fall cameras, like I mentioned, like this is the time of year where folks can really kind of, you know, use their cameras. You know, not just their you know um, most recent intelligence that they're getting from cameras to help kind of help inform their for hunting strategies, you know, but also they can look at year over year data and things like that. And so the, the fall Intel that you get is really actionable Intel, whether it's old data, new data, whatever it is, it's really kind of helping you put all the puzzle pieces together. So let's just start from the beginning, man, when you are, you know, we're coming out of summer now, let's take it from the beginning part of, of, of fall. So we've just kind of got done with summer with velvet, you know, you got your inventory of your bucks, whether you've had them on food sources or, you know, uh, clear cut edges or whatever the case is, you know, when are you transitioning your cameras from that summer setup, uh, to the fall setup? Like what time frame is that for you? Usually the end of August. Um, I, you know, in the, in session one, we talked about that August 18th, the 20th date and making sure that I'm checking cameras after, um, after that date, that same, in that same time frame where I'm checking those cameras, I'm also deploying or moving those cameras into, into my, my fall setups. I want to have those cameras out on my fall locations at least a week, maybe 10 days. Um, sometimes 10 days is tough, but at least a week before I think that shift is going to start happening to let things, you know, calm down, let my ground scent, you know, disperse or uh, dissipate and let things get back to normal before those bucks start shifting back into their fall range. Right. So you want, so let me get this right. So you want, to have that happen 10 days prior to when the shift will be. And I know what you're saying, like to when you're anticipating it to be, but like just to put certain terms around it, you know, for the listeners, if the shift, if, if we think the shift is around September 15th, you want to have your cameras shifted or moved no later than September 5th. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Usually uh, a lot of times I will use Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And use that long weekend to go, you know, check cameras. Usually it's maybe a couple of days, you know, that Thursday, Friday, uh, Saturday before Labor Day. Labor Day usually falls on a Monday, spend that with the family, but use that weekend to go in and do any of my camera work and have that stuff set up, um, you know, for the first couple of weeks of, uh, first couple of weeks of September when I think those bucks are going to, you know, go hard horn and then they're going to start moving around a little bit, find their fall range. Right. And so with all the cameras you've run, man, and this is a little off topic of camera strategy, but it, but it ties in, I think. Um, you know, uh-huh. you've, you've had a lot of, you know, data on deer and you've watched you know, a lot of deer through a lot of cameras for a lot of years. Is there, have you kind of been able to kind of recognize when you think the shift is precisely like, is there, is there a date that you have in mind? I know we're talking about, you know, mid September ish, but 
Have you seen any consistency with a date that kind of is like the, like, all right, by this time, man, they're all, they're all, they're transitioned at this point. And if they haven't transitioned, then their home range is, was the summer area that, that I got pictures of them in previously. Right. Um, in the big woods, I think that, you know, that's where I'm running the bulk of my cameras. Um, that's the biggest chunk of ground that I, I kind of roam around on. And I really think that happens by September 10th to the 12th. Mm. Yeah, I, I think those two days, um, you know, usually September 4th to at the latest, maybe the 7th, maybe the 8th, um, you know, those deers, are, the, the deer are peeling velvet mm-hmm. and starting to move around a little bit. Um, so that, yeah, that, uh, September 12th date is sticks, sticks in my mind around the big wood scenario. Now up around home on these smaller chunks with mixed ag and mixed timber lots, wood lots. Um, there's a lot less shifting really going on here. Like a lot of the deer that we, we have on, um, summer trail camera, we're still, we still have them in October. Now they might move around come November. They might be gone for a week. Maybe they're gone for two weeks, but. I think that they don't shift quite as much just due to the limited habitat. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in a, you know, we're not in a super densely populated area, but it's relatively populated. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what parcel size just, would you, there's would, limited space for those. What parcel size are you, are you thinking in that area, in your area? Um, anywhere from like a normal huntable chunk is probably 20, 20 acres. And then like a bigger chunk would be like 80 acres. And if you have, Anything bigger than that, it's um, you know, um, you're outside the bell curve. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Because I've seen, you know, what I've seen as far as like them going hard horn slash transitioning in this area, you know, for me at least, what I've seen relatively consistently. Actually, I was thinking the exact same date you were thinking, which was the twelfth. I've seen like eleventh, twelfth, usually after that, like I don't get them in their summer range anymore. I'll get them peeling about the same time you were mentioning. Like it's, it's that like seventh through 10th kind of time frame is whenever I've kind of yeah. seen the peel happen. Um, which I was just curious, you know, if there was a difference between what I'm seeing here in more of a suburban area versus what you're seeing in more of like that smaller chunk pseudo suburban kind of area. Right. But I think some of the pieces that I'm hunting down here, or over here rather are actually larger for suburban pieces, right? To where it's like, yeah, I have some of those places that mm-hmm. might be 25 acres or whatever, but a lot of the places that I have my cameras on are, are a couple hundred, maybe a thousand acres or whatever, you know what I mean? Where it's just a little bit, a little bit bigger. And so I do, it seems yeah. like I, you know, not big by any stretch of the imagination, you know, especially for public pieces per se, but um, I do still see that shift. And I think you and I talked about that one, you know, pretty, good deer that I lost last year during the shift. You know, it's like I had him all summer and then just, he vanished, you know, now I don't think he vanished real far. I think he just literally went to like another side of the side of the same piece. Uh, but he definitely wasn't hanging, Mm -hmm. um, in his normal area, but he did not to get off the topic of of trail cameras, but he did do the, he did pull the old, um, um, you know, we're going to reference the Drury's again in this, (laughs) in this episode that he, uh, he did, he pulled the old coming back home during the rut where he showed up, yeah. I think it was like, yeah. it might've been like the 13th or something like that. I mean, he was gone, like didn't get another picture of him from like the end of August until like November 13th. He just showed up out of the blue, you know, boat trader, America's largest boating marketplace offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from sell, find and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit boattrader.com to get started. And so, yeah, no, that's, that's super, that's super valuable information. Um, I, we just did a podcast with Don Higgins maybe a month or so ago, and that's, that's the time frame he sees his summer bucks come back. They find that first doe, um, you know, kind of in their core area, their fall range. And then when they're looking for a second one, for whatever reason, they want to venture back to that, their, their summer area. All right. And it's probably just familiarity. Like we, we were talking about that excursion they make between the 18th and 20th in the summer. And it's probably the same type of thing. I mean, it's driven by something different, but it's still an excursion kind of, of familiarity, right? Like they're not going out outside right. their, I don't want to say outside their comfort zone because they travel a lot during that time of year, but they're going to hit their old haunts. You know, it's like, you know, they're going to yes. go to places where they found success in the past. Right. And they, they're familiar with the territory yeah. and, and, and things of that nature. So, so we're going to tra- transition yeah. here, yeah. you know, our cameras, you know, early, 
early September, really that holiday kind of weekend is like the ideal time because you can maybe have a little bit of free time and stuff like that. You know, where are you specifically moving them to? Because I think conventional wisdom says scrapes, and we'll talk a little bit about scrapes here in a second because I know you and I both like to use them even during the summer. But what are some of the setups that you're yeah. going to use and move them to whenever you do transition your cameras for the for the fall setups? In September, it's really about um, the white oak crop for me in the big woods. Um, if I can find white oaks that are that are dropping that time of year, that's that's where I'm putting them. So a lot of times those are going um, well in in our area. A lot of times those those oaks are going to be on the kind of the northern facing um, slopes where they're available and kind of higher on the ridge. So white oaks are it as far as food source. Now I'm still leaving some of my summer trail cameras up on those, um, on those clear cuts. Like I'm not totally abandoning, abandoning those cuts. Mm -hmm. So I'm still treating those, um, as a food source, but as you get further into, into the fall, you know, a lot of the forbs and noxious weeds and stuff are starting to dry out. They're starting to lose their, you know, palatability. The attraction level is starting to drop. Now those deer are still going to use that edge. They're still going to use that, um, security cover. They're still going to use those, um, clear cuts. But as far as, you know, destination food sources are the most attractive food sources in the areas in September, it's, it's white Oaks. Right. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes sense. And, you know, for me, it's like, I, a lot of times I'm still kind of, to your point, focusing on those, you know, edges of edges of cuts, especially if I'm in a, in a swamp kind of area where I'm not going to have a ton of oaks necessarily, or maybe it's not, and maybe it's a bad crop or whatever, to your point, it, it can still be, it can still be valuable at that, at, at, just from a travel perspective. Right. And if nothing else, if I can get some travel data, I can maybe start to backtrack some things as well at that point. You know, I think that's the one part it's like, even if you're not getting exactly what you want from that particular camera, right. Or maybe let's just say, maybe, you know, someone has scouted and maybe they're newer, you know, at the game and they don't have identified like where their, where their Oak stands are and stuff like that. You know, you can use that data that you're getting from that travel, you know, direction and that time and then start to backdate, you know, or backtrack timestamp wise, you know, the direction they were traveling from and then start looking at like the next best, kind of terrain travel features that, that, that they might use. And, and then maybe then at that point, leapfrog your camera back in that direction. And so just because you don't know what some of these things are or where they're at, doesn't mean you can't make some moves with your camera. There's a bunch of different ways to try to figure that out. It's one thing Bill Winky does is backtrack using cameras to kind of tighten a, tighten a noose, so to speak around his, mm -hmm. around his deer. And he's been very effective at it over, over the years. Is that something that, that you've kind of used in the past as well? If you're kind of starting from ground zero, maybe you don't have as much of a handle on a piece that you, that you have on others. Um, not necessarily leapfrogging cameras. Mm -hmm. um, that is a good strategy from our perspective. We have, you know, cameras available. So usually if it's in a, if it's in a new area and we really or trying to figure out a specific deer to hunt, or if it's a new area that we know that we're going to hunt, um, we're going to cast a wide net. Mm -hmm. So we'll identify those, I guess, destination camera sites, and then we're going to place, I guess, perimeter cameras around there. And then when we're checking those cameras, if, you know, if camera A, which is like to the west of the central hub or the destination location, or destination camera spot if that has the majority of the intel on it then we're going to pull those other perimeter cameras out and then move those like make another basically another perimeter another hub um around that camera that had the most intel on it so it's it's similar to leapfrogging but we're not just doing it with one or two cameras because um i think oftentimes when you're just doing that with one or two cameras you know again in a big woods where things tend to wander a little mm -hmm. bit um you know the travel might not be as defined. It gets a little more difficult. Now, if you look at a, a more, I guess, large scale and you go into maybe like a two mile radius and you're identifying the benches, you're identifying the saddles, you're identifying those terrain features. I think that you could do it then. Mm -hmm. um, now there's going to be bigger time gaps there. You know, a, a deer doesn't use a bench and he goes down across the bottom and uses like uh, a Creek crossing or something. And you miss, photos for a couple of days and leaves you wondering, you know, was he there? Was he not there? Where'd he go from the saddle? Did he go down to this bottom? Did he go to the top? You know, 
there's a lot of uh, open-endedness, I guess, when you start doing that with just one or two cameras. But when you're on a, I think when you're on a smaller chunk, maybe you're on private, maybe you're in ag ground, um, I think it can be very effective to um, just leapfrog just maybe one or maybe two, maybe three cameras and just keep jumping them back until, you know, you get what you're looking for. And maybe it's not tracking him all the way back to bedding, but maybe it's just taking him back to a, uh, staging area or maybe the, you know, the edge of that property, the, you know, uh, the huntable, uh, ac- accessible property that you have access to. Uh, maybe it's just doing that. So again, it's, I think it's, it depends on where you are and exactly what you're, you know, what you're trying to do in a, in a big, I guess a big picture, we're more likely to set cameras up in areas like that and let them run for a year. Mm-hmm and not leapfrog them, um, and get annual data to figure out, you know, which camera sites are duds, which, you know, which areas, which strain features are being used the most, and then use those, use that information for the following season to really dial in, um, dial in your camera game for, you know, the next season. But you can certainly do it, um, in season. You just have to be uh, a little more active. Right. Let's talk about, you know, the annual, annual data. Cause I think a lot of folks, you know, I think more folks now today are using cameras more long-term, like looking at, you know, longitudinal data per se than they are in MRI. Right. And, and it's always still looking at MRI, especially if there's a deer trying to kill, you're trying to understand what they're doing today, you know? And so I, I get that aspect of it. Right. Um, but I think there's been more and more of a movement toward that longitudinal data where it's like, what are the deer doing year over year. And especially if you can get a specific deer doing the same thing year over year, you know, or showing up at, a, at the same spot, you know, every year in a, in a specific time frame, you know, is really, um, is really like where it's at <laughs> as far as like try to kill a particular deer, right. If you can get, if you can kind of build that database right. on them, it makes it, I don't want to say easier, but it gives you a, a much better chance of, of understanding his, his movement. So, you know, Talk a little bit about how you use, I guess, year-over-year data, and what are some what some things are that you look for in that year-over-year data that you try to that you try to kind of pin down. Yeah, well, I think I mean the obvious thing is for huntable data, you're looking for you know daytime activity, and usually we'll keep the conversation geared around the rut because I think that's when you know most guys are taking their you know their vacation somewhere between the you know, the last couple of days of October to the first, I don't know, 14 days of November. I think that's when most bow hunters are, are actually in the timber. So when I think that when you, when you start, start thinking about how whitetails breed, right, that the rut happens the same time every single year. It's not affected by the moon. It's not, um, I'm going to say it's not affected by the weather mm-hmm. because the breeding still happens. Right. The weather is going to dictate daylight, daylight activity. but the breeding itself is dictated by the photo period, which never changes. I mean, slightly. You have a little bit of the moon, a little bit of the cloud cover, but the penal gland affects when does are coming in estrus and what bucks are doing. So when you look at th- that aspect, those, those bucks that are three, four, five, six, seven years old, they've been through years of this experience. They know exactly what to do. And I think that Oftentimes, when people are talking about the rut, that they have this um, they have this image or this thought in their mind that there's going to be giants just running around like crazy everywhere, like just like just, they're going nuts. And that's something that I have not seen a whole lot. Like, yes, I've seen big deer get on a doe and you know chase chase a doe around a ridge side, but not running miles and miles and miles like back and forth like a mm-hmm. you know like a love strict puppy during the daylight. So when you're able to capture that information um, with your trail cameras, it leaves you with a, basically a, we'll call it a 72 hour window of the same thing happening in the year to come. And, you know, Don Higgins was probably the first one to talk about this back in 2012. And it seemed like an interesting concept. I did not see it with my own eyes until 2015 or 2016, where we were hunting a specific deer in the big woods. And I guess we were hunting him in 15 
2015. And we had a bunch of cameras out. And we were scouting every single day, trying to find this deer. Could never get on them. Had trail camera pictures of them. And we spent that next, you know, postseason trying to find his bed, trying to figure out where he was. Spent the whole summer trying to glass him. We never saw that deer one single time. Never saw him one time. And then November 4th or November 3rd, it was either the 3rd or the 4th, 365 days after we got his, you know, got him on camera the very first time, he was back on that same scrape 364, 365 days later and shot him the next day. And that was like, oh my God, like this is a, like this annual stuff is a real thing. So when you start looking at annual data, you have to be able to set your cameras out, have faith and enough conviction in those spots to let them run. Right. Because when you're going in there every week, every, you know, three days, whatever it is, you're, you're not giving the camera a fair shot to do its job. Right. You know, you could be blowing the spot up. The, kit, the spot could be great, but if you're in there every other day, you're blowing it up. Um, so you just got to be, like I said, you got to have enough conviction in where you're putting the camera to let it do its job. And then when you have the data, you really have to go back and analyze the daytime activity, even the nighttime activity, you know, just because you have a deer on camera at, you know, eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, doesn't mean he's not in that vicinity during the day. I was just going to say, that's when like the boots on the ground scouting. Yeah. I was just going to say that like where it's, um, especially if you have that deer in daylight in a, in a specific location, you know, annually, right. In a, in a specific time frame. If you happen to get an outlier of like one at night, like the first thing I would think about, well, what was the weather difference in that? Was it hot? Absolutely. Was it hot that day? Was he more comfortable moving at night more specifically, you know, in that time frame? right? Was, was there yep. a bunch of rain like before? Was it going to rain later? You know, like what was the setup there that made him, you know, behave a little bit differently? Because to kind of further illustrate that point, and I think I know what deer you're talking about. And I was hunting in a similar area in this spot this past year. And you and I had trail camera data of a particular deer that liked a particular scrape in that particular area within like a three-day window, right? Two years in a row, I think it was, he showed up. He was in that area, right, if I'm not mistaken. And so I hunted him this year, and I didn't didn't see him. But it's not about the particular camera spot because you and I kind of talked afterwards, and I've mentioned it on this podcast. Like I'm pretty sure I blew that deer out of his bed along that access path, or along the access that he was bedded along the access. Right. And I would I would put any amount of money that it was it, that it was that it was that deer. And so he didn't necessarily show up to the spot that I was at. And but he like in my opinion, it proved out that he was in that area yet again in that same in that same window. And that kind of goes back to the whole idea of like, you know, talking to some of these guys that, you know, whether it's freaking Eddie Claypool or whether it's Nathan Killen or whatever it is, these guys that get it done regularly, like the first thing they tell you is like, you know, you, is you have to get comfortable hunting off the sign, right? And a lot of times when we run cameras, we're running them in specific areas because we know that deer are going to congregate there. And what they kind of preach and talk about is like, okay, we'll take that data. and now hunt off of that where you think you're going, where you think he might spend time or where he might pass through or whatever. Cause like that one spot is just like a moment in time that you're capturing him there and you're likely to kill him outside of that. But doesn't mean that he's not there. If you don't 100%. see him there, he's likely in the area. You just need to be in, you just need to kind of understand how he likes to run that haunt, so to speak. 100%. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I don't know if I could have, really said it any better the only thing i would maybe add to that is you know when you're looking at annual data and knowing that that deer was in a specific spot in front of that camera as you said the following year if that deer's still alive maybe i mean deer skirt cameras maybe that deer was 50 yards away it doesn't always you know the annual data doesn't always isn't always going to tell you that deer walked in that his same exact footprint 365 days later mm-hmm but he will be in that general vicinity. Right. And then I wonder, I'm just curious this, and this is less camera and more just overall strategy, but it will tie it back to cameras, you know, following doe bedding, like how often do you do that? Especially mm-hmm. for like the rudder, even just getting a sense where does, does are bedding. And 
Do you see any kind of annual data with that where it's like you're getting bucks visiting specific doe bedding areas year over versus like, you know, a specific scrape during the particular time of year or whatever the case is? Well, I, um, I have run cameras on, on, in doe bedding or around doe bedding. And I can't say that I've always had the same buck on that specific camera, but I always have bucks show up during that same time frame, that same window. Yeah. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, that totally, that totally makes sense. Whether it's, and really like some of those cameras that we have out in, um, in Kansas, like we're getting all does on those cameras, which is fine because we're going to be out there, you know, November, whatever. We'll be out there in November. So yeah, it's, um, with the doe bedding, it's, I haven't found as much success as I've had with just those, with scrapes in close proximity to bedding. I've had much more success around the scrapes and that could be a, a big woods thing. Like those deer, they, they want to make their, make their rounds. They want to cover ground and using those scrapes as a communication tool, you know, hitting this scrape, it's nothing for them to go a mile and, you know, an hour and a half or whatever and check out the next primary scrape. Um, so I think it's more about covering ground and communicating. And then when a time's right, that's something a lot of people don't talk about, but when those scrapes dry up, your butt better be, your butt better be in that, like hunting bedding areas. Right. The moment that those scrapes start to dry up, turn your, shift your attention to bedding areas. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, one thing I think that I've noticed around here and, or just noticed in general, not, I'm not breaking any news here, but it's just, it's, it's kind of how I think about it or how it, how it helps me. There's a particular doe bedding area that I will hunt around here. Um, that it, it turns on at like a certain, at a certain time, like I've watched it and it's been pretty consistent for like two seasons. And, but the kicker is there's a big primary scrape that's there. And so I think a lot of times, like if you're in the right spot and you have really prime kind of hammered doe bedding areas, right. A lot, especially if you have a couple things that are converging, you're going to oftentimes probably get a pretty decent kind of primary scrape area. That's not going to be far off that, especially if it's in cover, right. Those things often will kind of coincide together. Yeah. And, And, you know, if you had the choice of running your camera on a scrape, just outside of bedding or on a trail just outside of bedding, I'm going to pick the scrape every oh, time yeah. because it's a, it's, it's a destination. It's a, it's where deer want to go. So it's, it's on their, it's on the radar. It's on their map. They may not use that trail. They might cut off that trail and, you know, uh, maybe they're above it or maybe they're below it, but typically they're going to be, you know, they're going to be drawn to that. Scrape. Right. Exactly. Well, so let's transition to that now. Like, you know, knowing that, Scrapes are a hot spot, obviously, to hang trail cameras in the fall when you're tra- when you're transitioning them, right? Because like early fall, you're you know you're transitioning to those oaks, you know, trying to find where those oaks are dropping, and you're in your prioritizing that. As you move a little further into the fall, obviously, scrapes become like the primary kind of key area to make sure that you're monitoring. So, you know, given that we all kind of know know that that's a great spot to be, you know, hanging cameras this time of year. Do you have any kind of suggestions or ways that you like to set up your camera setups around scrapes? Is there specific like oh. distance, height, you know, anything you do, you know, for those locations? Oh, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of times guys are so concerned about getting a, you know, the the poster picture or like this crazy video of a deer working a licking branch, a giant buck coming in and working a licking branch, and being all aggressive in there that and and i'm going to say this in context to every deer is different mm-hmm. right i think that we all know that that every deer is going to react to um you know its surroundings a little bit different but there's no reason for me to stick a, a camera in a deer's face and let him possibly have an adverse reaction to that like there's no reason for me to do that yeah. like i'm not out to you know uh get these wonderful pictures i want to know that deer's there in the area i want to know when he's you know, when he's hitting that scrape, when he's hitting that scrape, how he's hitting that scrape, what kind of demeanor does he have? So I'm typically hanging my cameras 20, 25, 30 feet away from that scrape. And I'm going to have that camera higher than the line of sight of the deer. So typically that's, you know, I'm, I'm about a little over six foot tall. So head height, maybe sometimes a little higher depending on the, the terrain there. Um, I want to do everything I can not to make that camera visible. Uh, so 
Like if you're out hanging tree stands, like when you're looking for cover on a tree or a certain diameter tree to help, you know, have some back cover, break your body up. I am going through that same process and it seems extensive, but I'm going through that same process of hanging cameras. If it's, if I have that much conviction in this, in the spot, because I don't want deer to notice the camera, number one. And I just don't want that buck. If, you know, if, it, if I'm hunting a specific deer, I don't want that buck to notice the camera at all. So I'm going through those things um, to get the hammer, camera hung. When I start to actually mess with the settings, if it's a, if it's a camera I know I'm going to check, I will run, I'll, I'll run video mode. I like to run a longer video than a shorter video, so like upwards of 25 seconds. Hmm. Um, I've played, we've played around with video lengths, like 10, 15 second videos. And they seem like just too short deer will come in and he'll kind of survey his surroundings. He'll eye up that scrape and then you'll get him walking over to the scrape and he just gets his nose in a licking branch and like 10 seconds is over or t- 15 seconds is over. And it's like, damn it. Like I wanted to see his demeanor and then where he went, like I seen where he's coming from, but I want to know how he exited that scrape. Um, and I didn't get that. So the 25, 30 second videos, it eats up a lot of card space, eats up batteries, but I think it gives you more of the whole picture than those shorter video clips. Right. If it's a, if it's a camera, I'm not, if it's like a test camera, if it's in an area that, you know, it's a long-term set, I'm just going to run photo mode. I'm going to run photo mode, like on a, uh, probably like a three shot burst. And I'm going to run a longer trigger delay, probably like a, maybe a minute trigger delay, uh, on that camera and let it, let it roll that way. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I never knew that you ran, you know, I mean, I knew you ran video mode, you know, whenever it was appropriate, but I never knew that you ran it that long because I, I like to run video mode for the same reasons. Like if I, if I know there's a a really good scrape, you know, that I've kind of qualified already, you know, um, and I won't say that it's relatively easy to get to because there's certain scrapes for me that I prioritize as like, I don't really ever want to be in here until I'm coming to hunt to kill. And so that gets like a cell camera, you know what I mean? Because I'm just going to monitor it. For sure. And, and it's usually a place that I have maybe just a little bit of history with where I'm like, okay, I know roughly when this should turn on. I just need there to be a handful of does to hit it like midish October. Whenever I hit that, like, 16th to April or um, 16th to like October 20th phase where usually you get that first time that that big deer will show up in, in daylight for the first time, you know, like I'm waiting to see like when those start getting active around it a little bit. And then it tells me like, okay, I should probably start to, I need to figure out what weather day I have coming up to try to hunt it. Right. Um, right. And those right. get like a cell camera, right. Because I'm trying to stay out of there, but the places that I'm still trying to learn a lot of times that I know are going to be good or could be good. I like to run video on those for the same reasons that you mentioned. It's like you get so much more information when you can see like how they come in, what their demeanor is, what, what direction they left in is really important for me. It's like what, you know, what point, what, what directions are head facing, what directions are ass facing. Like those are two things that I want to know whenever yeah. they're coming and going, but I never really thought about demeanor, man. Like, so what are you, what are you gleaning from that? Are you just thinking about like, is he the, the cock of the walk? Is so, he the boss of the area? Is he, you know, a, a demiss or a submissive deer in the area? Like, are you trying to understand the hierarchy? Yes. So I, I have an example and I picked, I picked that video length up and that basically everything I just said from Jake. Mm. And Jake um, is like the master so, of like scrape video camera setups. Yes. Without a doubt. Um, so a couple of years ago he had, he killed a, an eight-year-old, just gnarly, gnarly buck in Illinois, um, I think two seasons ago. So go back three seasons ago, he has this camera set up on a, it It wasn't a primary scrape, but it was a scrape not far, it was basically on a travel route between two bedding areas, basically, but it wasn't a primary scrape where it was being used like 365. Mm-hmm. It lit up in, you know, mid-October and then all the way through December. But he had this, um, at that time, it would have been like a six, five or six year old buck come in, work that scrape all busted up. So broken tines. And he came in, worked that scrape with his tail tucked for the entire video. So he walked in, his tail tucked, worked the scrape, not super aggressively, just had his nose up in the licking branch, pawed the ground up a little bit, walked away with his tail tucked. The next video, which was like just a couple minutes later, 
this giant typical, like 170-inch typical comes in and just demolishes that branch. <laughs> like, has his antlers, has his nose up in there, his antlers, just trying to tear the freaking tree down, pawing the ground up, like, super erratically. So, Jake, in his mind, played out that scenario previously of having of not having those deer on camera just like a couple minutes before, of possibly them fighting. Maybe that, you know, the one that came in with his tail tucked just got his ass kicked by that giant typical. So the following season, Jake sees that eight-year-old deer on the hoof and know, and he knows that he's on that same farm and knows that both those deer are alive. And he knows from that scrape video that the deer that he sees on the hoof is submissive to that big typical. So he knows he can't make like any uh, aggressive grunting. So what he did, he gave out some super soft, um, like immature butt grunts and then some doe bleeds and called that deer in 25 yard and shot. Hmm. Now, if he had not had that camera set up in video mode, had not gotten that intel, would he have done the same thing? Prop, I mean, he said probably not. He probably would have just, you know, been more aggressive with his call and um, called it that deer. And maybe that deer would have came in. Maybe it wouldn't. We, we'll never know. But having that information, again, f- from running video mode on that scrape gave him the intel for the next year of how to react when he saw that deer in the hoof. Right. Which I thought was like, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, that's a good point, man. Like, I, that's, uh, I mean, that's killer data that you can't get anywhere else. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's like maybe, maybe no. you know, you'd maybe have to have like a bad interaction with that deer to learn that where maybe you rattled at him or snort wheezed at him and then all of a sudden he tucked his tail and just like went the opposite way. It's like you could then say, well, okay, he's probably not the toughest guy on the block. There's got to be a more mature or a more dominant deer in the area, right? Whether it's bigger or not remain would remain to be seen. But that would also mean you just blew the opportunity on a really good deer to learn about a deer that you may or may not ever see. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, exactly. You know, that's really that's really interesting, man. I'm gonna have to now you've got me like thinking that whenever I transition my cameras, I need to like I need to set it my video mode longer <laughs> at this point, just for that for that reason alone. But so I mean this time of year, dude, you know, how often the cameras that you're not letting soak for like the season or whatever the case is, you know, I know that you have all types of different cameras out. You have some that are out for validating new spots that you're learning about that are, you know, that you, maybe you're not going to hunt and you're just kind of gathering data. And then certainly, you know, places you'll be checking cause you're going to be hunting them, you know, for those places that you are going to be checking, yeah. like what's that frequency for you? Well, if it's, if it's during November and it's around, um, a specific day that I have, you know, an- some annual data around, I'm checking that as much as I need. I'll check it every day. Mm. I'll go in there and check it every day because I'm in there scouting, wanting to know if that deer is alive. If he's alive, I know he's here somewhere. Mm-hmm. If he's not alive, then, you know, I need to, I need to move on. So during November where you can get away with a lot more, I'm checking those cameras as much as freaking possible. Um, and maybe Maybe you get one of those stranger bucks. Maybe maybe you go out and, and check a camera where some random buck shows up and he's there five minutes before before you were there. Hmm. So, I mean, you, you have all those weird scenarios in November where you can get away with a lot more. Um, I will check those as as much as possible. Mm-hmm. As much as possible. Yeah, and I don't want people to like that are listening to think like whenever, because I've hunted with you often enough to know how this, how this kind of works. It's like, whenever Chad's checking these cameras as much as possible, he's not just running into the timber beeline it to a camera and just running from camera to camera to camera. It's a scouting session that he's kind of trying to figure out where the signs being laid down. And as he's doing that, he's making his way to these camera locations to, to validate either sign he has or hasn't seen and marry it up with what he has seen on camera. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's not, you know, I'm not pulling my map up and saying, okay, I have a camera here, camera there, camera there. And let me just make a speed round and check all, check all these cameras. Like I'm no, that's not what I'm doing now. If I'm driving roads and I have a camera, you know, like 40 yards from a road, yeah, I will just hop out of the truck and just, you know, beeline over there and check the camera just to see what's on it. Cause it may change my day. Right. Um, but if I have cameras in the timber, I'm not just, you know, checking them sporadically. Like I'm going in scouting planning for some type of 
you know, hang and hunt um, or hunt off the ground or whatever. But I have some kind of intention of being there prior to checking that camera. Right. But when I have those cameras in those vicinities, I'm going to check them. Right. So, yeah, to your point, it's not, it's not haphazardly running around. And I'm still cautious of, you know, what's going on around me. Which way my wind is blowing? Like where? How I'm accessing? You're still hunting. It's not. There's still. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's still. It's still hunting. You're not. You're not going in just to check cameras. That you're. You're hunting with the additional agenda point of checking those cameras to validate some. Some of your. Some of your information, essentially. Yes. You know. So yes. that's one thing I that I still have a hard time doing, man. Like. <laughs> It's, it's, I don't know if it's just like the old, you know, not being in an area or whatever the case is, right? Not, you know, trying to mess something up. Like I just have a hard time with it and I watch you do it and, and it doesn't screw anything up. I just have a hard time bringing myself to do it. It's like a, I have some mechanism in my head that won't let me get past it. But the, uh, what about October? Like, you know, that's obviously like November you're, you know, trying to be as engaged or check the, them as frequently as often or as often as possible. You know, what about October, you know, when you maybe can't get away with quite as much? What's your kind of, I guess, frequency for checking them during that time frame? Yeah, so in October, um, you know, if it's a long-term set, obviously I'm, I'm probably not even going in there to, to check cameras unless it's a, if it's a super hot day, I, it's a terrible weather day to hunt, and I'm, I'm in the area, and there's, you know, it'll be a scouting slash card pull mission. But if, you know, if I'm down there with decent weather and I have, uh, you know, the anticipation or the, it's on my agenda to hunt, I'm only checking those cameras if they are crossing my path to my, to my stand locations or if they're in route on my scouting mission. Like if the sign is leading me past some of these cameras, I will check them, but I'm not making it a mission to go out and check cameras in an area where I'm hunting a deer. Um, in October because I already have all the historical information. If I, you know, similar to November, if I'm, if I'm passing a camera, I will check it, but it's, it's, it cost me last year, like going, yeah. you know, going in to hunt, um, a big deer last year, the very first set wanting to know if he was on camera, I could have not checked that camera, but I walked to it, checked it. Deer came through that area caught my ground scent because I walked to check that freaking camera and um, kind of screwed some things up for me. So um, you definitely have to be more cautious in October. You just can't get away with as much um, as you can in November. Right. So, and then, w- but it's still, it's still similar though. I'm only, I'm only checking them if, if I'm going, going in. The right. Hunt. And then what about, you know, cameras? Like if you know where there's a, and this is probably more specific to, you know, October ish, you know, cause obviously buck bedding and, November is, you know, a a crapshoot. You know, the you know, you can locate some, you know, rut bedding and stuff like that, but you don't really know what bucks are using it and how often they're using it and, and stuff like that. So really, you know, when we're talking about bedding, it's probably more the October, you know, time frame. Like, you know, how often sure. are you running cameras around that bedding specifically? And then how close will you will you push in? And then how often are you checking those particular mm-hmm. cameras? Um, I, it depends on, it depends on the scenario and, and where the bedding opportunity is. If there's, um, like in hill country, if there's a specific point where I've done some postseason scouting and there's, you know, there's some buck bedding there and that point, you know, there's only a couple ways to go to and from that point, then I'll, I'll hang cameras as far back, um, as I can. Maybe it's at the end of that point down a creek, cro- a, a creek bottom or a creek crossing. Mm-hmm. If he's going to, if, you know, if there's a hard trail and hard sign coming down that point, I don't need to push up into the bedding to hang that camera because I know he's coming down that point crossing the Creek. I'll, I'll put my camera on the Creek crossing. I can get in there and check it and not have to worry about, you know, being ultra sensitive to disturbing that bedding. Um, if it's, uh, an area where there's, you know, several trails or several different ways to get, you know, in and out of that bedding area then that's when I want to probably move my cameras um, in a little bit tighter, a little bit closer. And as far as checking them, like in the, in the second scenario, I think is where you have to be a lot more cautious of going in and, and checking yeah. them. 
Um, you can use like a super, um, a super windy day where you have lots of, uh, lots of noise, mm-hmm. lots of, you know, wind cover, noise cover, audible cover. Um, you can get in there a little, a little stealthier, especially if you're in timber, typically in the areas that we're in, the leaves are super, super crunchy and you got to go really slow. Yeah. Um, when you get in, you know, close proximity to bedding, but, in October, I won't go more than two weeks. I would say ten to fourteen days is kind of the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. Um, if if I could, you know, if you, go ten days, ten to fourteen yeah. days, yeah, ten to fourteen days in October. So that's one or one or two card pulls um, in October. In, in October, and you know, postseason scouting that stuff again, knowing that there's a betting opportunity on a point. If I'm in that area, I'm probably going in there to hunt mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, typically in the big woods, like if you're not hunting a like maybe a primary scrape, you're gonna have to be close to bedding to find that deer in daylight or have a shot opportunity, anyways. Yeah. Um, so again, that kind of it all kind of comes back to scouting your way in for a hanging hunt, and when the cameras are there, just kind of validate um what you're what you're seeing on the, with uh, boots on the ground with what the cameras tell yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. The one thing I started doing around here was just you know some a few of the bedding spots that well one in particular comes to mind that you know I think my theme is man is like anything that I feel is a high value target it really might be one way to put it is I almost always use a cell camera on it just so I can stay out just so Absolutely. I can stay out of it. You know, there's one area where yeah I, I found a bed with rubs in it. A buck was living in it last year. Now he transitioned out last year, and then I I don't know where he went, but he lived in it, you know, during the summer. Um, that's the same deer that made it made yeah. his way back during rut during the one off, and now there's another one that's using it right now that I got a picture of, you know, and so you know who knows if he's going to stick around or not. But I literally have a cell camera in there, and I will not go into that spot until I'm going to go hunt it. I'll get the right wind, the right the right Absolutely. weather. I'll slip in and hunt it, and that'll be it, you know, and I'll probably hunt it twice. And, and that'll yeah. be, that'll be it for the season, you know? Um, right. but I hung up. Yeah. There's, a, there's definitely guys. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, there's definitely guys who use that strategy as far as hanging cell cameras on, on, uh, in beds or over top of bed. I know we talked with Joe Rentmeister and he's hanging cameras directly over top of a bed. Um, just to know what, it, what exactly is going on. I don't have that luxury in the particular piece of public because there's just services so limited. Yeah. Yeah. But you could definitely do that with cell cameras. That would that would be the way to yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. And it, I don't have it directly over the bed. It's like I have it, you know, um, I have it probably fifty yards from from the exit, you know. So and and I and, mm. and I typically, yep. you know, and, and they kind of have to walk down this. There's two different areas they could bed in. Like the one I found the specific bed. I know that they're bedding in another area. I just couldn't find the exact bed. And this is typically the line that they kind of have to travel to make it to the other side, especially when it's hot out because there's a small to the east there's a small creek that runs through it and that's actually whenever i get most of the pictures during the summer is whenever it gets hot it gets dry and they start moving over there to 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 catch a drink and that was you that was this past like i guess two weeks ago is whenever i got to pick it was super hot out super dry and it was daylight and he was headed to toward the water you know so you know, just using a couple of those little things, you know, to trying to put the pieces together. It's like, that's, well, that's when he's going to move in daylight now. And I know that I'm close now. We'll just have to see, just have to see if he sticks around or not. But right. man, I think we covered fall pretty well, brother. Is there anything that we, uh, that we left off here? Or is that, uh, is that a wrap for the fall? No, I think that's a pretty good, uh, grasp on October, November. That's yeah. I think we, I think we got it. Awesome, man. Well, before I let you get out of here, if you wouldn't mind, let folks know where they can find out more about you and more about Exodus. Sure. You can find us um, at Exodus Trail Cameras, all things social. Um, and then our website is exodusoutdoorgear.com. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, man. I appreciate you coming on and doing these two parts, man. And uh, as always, I'm looking forward to you and I uh, doing some traveling this this fall together. It can't get here soon enough. Uh, Kansas, baby. I'm ready. Here we go. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. 
Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment all right gang the new truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on youtube below any of the truth from the stand videos i've got some new hats beanies t-shirts long sleeve t-shirts and sweatshirts there's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.